Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm John Fensterwald. Louis Friedberg is away this week. In the 42 years since the passage of Prop 13 in 1978, there has been much criticism about the impacts of a law on California's economy, especially on school funding. But what there hasn't been until now was an attempt to change it. This episode, we're going to talk about Proposition 15, a highly controversial initiative on the ballot next month that will rewrite portions of Prop 13, raising taxes on commercial properties. A big share of the billions of dollars in new revenue would go to K-12 schools and community colleges. We'll also turn attention to the invisible and sometimes delayed impact that devastating fires have on the mental health and well-being of children. It's particularly painful now that wildfires are sweeping through parts of Sonoma County for the second or third time in four years. We'll speak with EdSource reporter Carolyn Jones, who wrote about the issue this week. But first, Prop 15. On November 3rd, Californians will vote on the so-called split-roll tax initiative put on the ballot by a coalition of community groups and public service unions led by the California Teachers Association. Prop 13 limits the tax increases to 1% of a property's value and limits annual tax increases to 2%. Prop 15 wouldn't change that, but it would require that the owners of commercial properties worth more than $3 million have their properties reassessed every three years, as opposed to only when they're sold, which will continue to apply to residential property. Some properties in counties with fast rising property values, like Disneyland and Universal Studios and properties belonging to high-tech companies developed decades ago in Silicon Valley, they haven't been reassessed in decades, which is why Prop 15 would raise an estimated $6.5 billion to $11.5 billion annually in tax revenue. 40% of that would go to K-12 districts and community colleges and the rest to counties and cities. So, okay, that's a lot of numbers. That's why I wrote a Q&A this week, which I will link to on our podcast page. And I mention them now for background because today we'll focus only on two issues that may weigh on your mind when you decide how to vote. First, do schools need the money and is there enough revenue from Prop 15 to make a difference? And second, how will Prop 15 affect small businesses, especially during a recession. That's the issue that the No on Prop 15 campaign is hitting hard on in ads that are inundating the airwaves. First, we'll speak with an advocate for the initiative. We are pleased to have on the line Jesse Rothstein. He's an economist and professor of public policy and economics at UC Berkeley. He was the lead author of a letter signed by 20 prominent economists who said that Prop 15 makes good economic policy. Welcome, Jesse Rothstein. Thank you. So the opponents say this is the worst time during a pandemic and a potentially long recession to raise taxes on businesses. And their ads say the estimated $11 billion would be passed on to consumers and most directly to business owners and renters. Isn't that so? No, it's it's not so. One thing to know is that this bill builds in a fairly long phase in this proposition. There, we know it will take a long time to complete the assessments of the property values of the businesses that will be affected. So it will phase in over several years. We will hopefully be long past the pandemic by the time that happens. 
But the other thing to know is that the businesses whose, whose property taxes will go up as a result of this are businesses that have been getting big windfalls because they're being taxed at rates that are way out of date. They're being taxed, uh, many of them, on the basis of what their property was worth in 1978. That's 42 years ago, and property values have gone way, way up since then. At Disneyland is the poster child for that, I'm assuming? Disneyland is the poster child. I live in the East Bay, and so I looked up the Claremont Hotel, which is a big resort hotel in Berkeley. The property taxes for the Claremont Hotel are one-sixth what I pay for my home. I don't live in a particularly fancy home, but I bought my house 10 years ago, and, they, and they, they're paying based on the value in 1978. And that's, that, that's a big windfall for those owners. That doesn't mean that the Claremont charges less for its rooms. The Claremont charges for its rooms what the market will bear. And if their taxes go up, they won't be able to pass that on through higher room rates. They'll still be able to charge what the market will bear. They will lose this windfall profit they've been making, but it won't get passed on to consumers. And the same is true if the property owner is a landlord who's renting out space to smaller businesses. They set the rent for that property based on supply and demand for for the property. And that's not affected by how much they're paying on taxes. Well, the argument is that the leases are what's called triple net and property taxes are part of that. So it would be automatically passed on to those renters. Well, again, you have to think about the phase-in period. That this, this will take several years and the leases will be renegotiated between now and when the tax increase takes effect. And what we would expect is that the rent will, will fall to reflect the higher property tax. So is it good, though, to raise taxes on business even in the tail end of our long recession, say it, it will be several years. I think the state is going to need more revenue. The schools are going to be very badly impacted by the loss in revenue. We're going to have to come up with it from somewhere. And I think coming up with it from large businesses that have been getting windfall gains due to a badly written way of designing property taxes is one of the least painful ways we could come up with that revenue. So when you say the big landowners, there is an exemption here for small business owners. Are a lot of people going to benefit from that or what? Most businesses will not be affected by it. They're going to have much less less than the, the threshold for being affected by it. And many others will be affected only a small amount. In addition, there's a change in the way that other kinds of non-land property is taxed that would actually reduce the tax bill for, for most small businesses. You've told me that you're the father of two students in California public schools. So from your perspective, how urgently do we need more revenue? And and is this portion of it, it's 40% of the revenue that will be raised from this tax will be going to schools? Is that the right balance? So we need more revenues for the schools. I think my older son started kindergarten in the wake of the Great Recession, and his kindergarten class had 28 students in it. That's crazy. We can't. We shouldn't have 28 student kindergartens, but that's where we're going to be in a few years if we have another state fiscal crisis and no revenue to, to backfill that. So we need that extra revenue. Other agencies that will be getting the, the other money need the money as well. Some of the money will go to transit agencies. They've also been hit very hard by this crisis. Other municipal services as well. So I think, I think we need the revenue. I think California is, has fallen behind other states in the amount it spends on schools, and this will help to close that. There are, according to polls, maybe 10%, 15% of undecided voters. I'll give you 30 seconds to make the case for Prop 15. Sure. So we've frozen into place a very outdated property tax system that nobody really intended to stick around for this long for, for commercial properties. The system we have has an automatic reset feature for homeowners. 
that every generation a house is going to have to be sold when, when one generation passes on to the next generation. But for commercial property, large companies are able to structure their transactions so that the, the property is never sold and it's never reassessed to market value. And they're getting huge windfall savings because they're paying property taxes based on decades out of date valuations. The only way we will ever be able to make the property tax system fair is to change that aspect of the system. And this is a balanced way of doing that that has lots of protections for small businesses. It's set up in a way that will not pass on substantial costs to consumers. And it will help to fund our schools, which will be good for all of us. We've been speaking with Jesse Rothstein, an economist and professor of public policy and economics at UC Berkeley. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Now to get the other side, let's turn to the No on Prop 15 coalition. We're fortunate to have with us Mike Gatto, former four-term Democratic Assemblyman from Los Angeles. Welcome, Mike. It's great to be here. You served in the administration of three Los Angeles mayors and are an attorney who represents small businesses. So you're an appropriate person to ask, why is the No campaign hammering on the impact of Prop 15 on small businesses? Aren't many of them already will be exempted from the initiative? Yeah, so great question. It's actually just the opposite. I think that this measure has so many flaws. And perhaps the biggest one is the way that they tried to exempt small businesses. In a nutshell, they failed. Uh, This measure would raise taxes. It would be the biggest tax hike in history on small businesses. And that's because something like 89% of businesses in California are in what's called triple net leases. And those are leases where by uh, contractually, property taxes are a direct pass through right to the business. So, you know, this isn't going to be the the big multinational corporation who's paying these taxes. It's going to be the neighborhood sandwich shop. It's going to be the neighborhood nail salon. It's going to be the young man who finally realizes his dream of opening up a gym. And these are the same businesses that are just getting crushed right now because of COVID. Well, this will be phased in over several years. Won't there be time to renegotiate the leases and won't the market take care of whatever increases in rent that there would be. You know, I've heard that argument and I don't buy it. Uh, You know, one can't simultaneously say that landlords are out there for profit, that they're here to make a buck, and also say at the same time that they're going to renegotiate with the neighborhood sandwich shop who's facing this gigantic tax increase. What's going to end up happening here is I think a lot of these businesses are going to close their doors. They're already suffering because of COVID. Um, They're already laying people off. Many of them are facing very tough decisions. And you add on this the uncertainty and the specter of a gigantic tax increase. And I think a lot of these small businesses will just say it's not worth it. You may have seen the study by prominent economics forecaster Christopher Thornburg of Beacon Economics. It was commissioned by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation. He looked at rents after the sale of commercial property, and his conclusion was that there would be very little impact on small business renters after Prop 15, and in which commercial properties would be reassessed, you know, every three years. What do you think? A lot of very brilliant minds, a lot of uh, very, very well-respected lawyers have looked at this and said just the opposite. They have noted that you've got a huge tax increase. Um, the language is very plain. You know, those who are renting are going to face this, some of this tax increase. And those are the smallest of the small businesses. And so to say that that's not going to affect them, you know, a couple thousand bucks to your neighborhood sandwich shop a month could make the difference between staying open and closing. Well, you have three kids. Don't schools need more money, Mike? You know, um, yeah, I do have three kids that are in public school. I myself am a product of public school. 
you know, if anyone wants to have a comprehensive tax reform discussion, I'm all ears. Uh, in my seven years in the legislature, this was a near and dear issue to me. And I've been one of a chorus of people who said the legislature needs to do its job. We need to discuss how we bring our tax code into the 20th century. But that's not what's before the voters. What's before the voters is a measure that was drafted by interest groups uh, that does a certain thing. And it's an up or down vote. And, you know, to do this type of complicated, complex tax reform at the ballot box, that's a very, very blunt instrument. It's the old, you know, taking a baseball bat where you really need a scalpel. Do we need tax reform? Absolutely. Do our schools need more money? Absolutely. But this measure is not the thing to do it. You know, right now, the thing that is most on people's minds, any parent like myself, is are our communities going to survive? Are the businesses that anchor our communities the mom and pop shops where we all like to go on the weekends, you know, to, to raise taxes in this manner during the greatest pandemic that this nation has faced since the great flu epidemic in 1917, I think is a huge mistake. Well, of course, this will be phased in, as we know, over three to five years. And so who knows what's going to happen in five years? I think that's a fair question, but people in business like certainty. Uh, everybody you talk to, they really appreciate knowing what the future will hold. Right now, because of COVID, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And then you add on the specter of a massive tax increase. Yeah, okay, so it's phased in over a period, but it's still going to have to be paid by these small businesses. And I think at some point they will say enough is enough. This is a straw that has broken the camel's back. And so the argument that it really isn't the small businesses, it'll be Disneyland and also Universal Studios, you know, the Intels of the world who bought properties long ago in Silicon Valley. I mean, what, what do you say to that? You know, it's interesting because um, if the drafters of this measure wanted it to only apply to gigantic corporations that own a massive amount of land, why didn't they just write that? I mean, I'd be here supporting it. I'd be here talking on the pro side. Um, a nice, simple, clean measure that said if a business owned more than 100 acres and uh, had more than $100 million in revenue every year, uh, you know, is going to face a reassessment. I think just about everybody would be supporting that. But instead, what you've got is you've got a coalition of uh, small businesses and people like me who know what they're going through, who have said, wait a minute, there are some massive flaws in this measure. And unfortunately, this is the measure that voters are being asked to vote on in a few weeks. We've been speaking with Mike Gatto, a former four-term Democratic Assemblyman from Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us, Mike. It's great to be here. So let's turn to another issue that's worrying Californians, whether or not they live in or near the 4 million acres that have burned in California so far this year. We have with us at Swiss reporter, Carolyn Jones. Hey, Carolyn, thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, sure thing. So you wrote about the lasting impact that trauma from fires has had and will continue to have on students and staff from you know evacuations, interruptions in their life, and just apprehensions of the unknown. Tell us, what did you find? Well, I called school leaders and I just asked them, you know, what lessons did you learn that other school districts could learn from going forward? And the big takeaway among many was that they all said the fire is just the first day and that the trauma and the hardships that children go through and their families last anywhere from 18 months to two years. So they said, don't just think that this is a one-off. You bring in some counselors and you're done. I mean, plan for a long, long, long process. Some kids were evacuated. But some kids lost their homes. 
They lost loved ones. They lost a pet, which I was told, you know, don't underestimate the value of a pet to a child. Some of them had to escape through flames, um, thinking that they were going to die. Some of them lost, you know, their friends all end up moving away. So they kind of lost their community. They just went through layer after layer after layer of loss. And for a child, sometimes that's really hard to process. I mean, for anybody, really. They said that, you know, for the first couple of weeks, couple of months, six months, maybe a lot of kids are just in survival mode. Like, where am I? Do I have someplace to sleep tonight? Do I have something to eat for dinner? Um, where, where are my parents? Are we going to get a new house? After the kind of the basic survival needs are met, that's when sort of the psychological stuff kind of kicks in. You go from being in that fight or flight mode to really sort of processing what's happened to you. Well, for some students, I guess it's clear But for others, it's not so. They may withdraw, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And different kids express this differently. Some have nightmares. Some, you know, the smell of smoke kind of triggers everything, which is, of course, in California, a constant now. (laughs) Some withdraw and they sort of become numb. One counselor I was talking to says, you know, we always talk about resilience. Oh, you know, every time you go through something hard, you get stronger. They said, but sometimes that doesn't happen right away. I mean, sometimes that takes a really long time to get to that point where you actually feel stronger. So they said, don't expect people to suddenly, oh, I survived. Now I feel great. I'm stronger on the other side. They said, that's kind of not really how it works, uh, especially for children. There's a, I guess there's a pitfall from that is that if, you know, you make that assumption, you feel it's you don't need to talk about it in school. And, and what you found was quite the opposite. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is that, you know, counseling obviously is a huge help for children and adults and staff and everybody, but it doesn't have to be necessarily from a trained mental health professional. It can just be talking to your friends, talking to your teacher, talking to anybody, just talking about it, processing it. And it just sort of helps us get through it. So if the kids all want to talk about the fire, let them talk about the fire. <laughs> so that was very interesting. What are the other strategies that schools and districts are doing in reaction or planning through wellness to deal with the kinds of tragedies that we probably anticipate will happen more often into many different areas of the state? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, they all said that, you know, it's really important to have your teachers trained in trauma, how to recognize trauma among children and how to react to it in the classroom, uh, how to help those kids make sure that they get the help that they need, look for different signs, just kind of basic mental health counseling teachers should get. Uh, and also other school staff as well. And also they recommended that schools establish relationships with local nonprofits and other agencies that can help because this, there's no way a school can do all this on their own. And it's very helpful to have these relationships in place before the disaster. So we've been talking about students, but then there's an emotional impact on teachers who we assume will be stoic and who have gone through a lot and will deal with a lot and just dealing with the students who have gone through all this as well. What did you find, Carolyn? Well, yeah, that's a really good point. Up in Butte County, they said that that was the, you know, the number one lesson they learned is to have mental health counselors dedicated just to helping the staff because the staff have been through all this too. You know, a lot of them have lost their homes or don't know where they're going to be living or suddenly find themselves in really precarious situations. And then on top of that, they're trying to help the kids. So it's a really very, very stressful time for the, for the teachers as well. And they said that, you know, you really need to make staff mental health a priority. Well, thanks, Carolyn, for joining us. You know, we've written about paradise in Butte County, but if anything from this past year, it shows that the fires are going to be in a lot of different places over time and something all of us have to be aware of. And your story was helps us do that. So thank you. Thanks, John.
Before I leave, this week there were dramatic and unexpected outcomes on two bills that we have discussed in EdSource. Governor Newsom vetoed the bill to require that all students complete a course in ethnic studies for a high school diploma, and he vetoed the bill that could have introduced the first big reform of the local control funding formula since its passage in 2013. We interviewed the author of that bill, Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, about it earlier in the year. Newsom actually said he fully supported both bills in principle and will probably take heat from advocates of ethnic studies and fair funding. But he said, in effect, slow down, try again, and we'll work together on these issues next year. I'll include links to my articles on the vetoes and Newsom's veto messages in this week's podcast page. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from the Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and EdSource's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Lewis Friedberg will return next week to delve into a voter survey on distance learning that EdSource will be publishing within the next few days. I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening and be well. We'll be back next week. <laughs>